I want to uh, start off today, and I will mention this a little more in the message, capturing the news this week has been uh, current events, world events, happened in Lebanon and in France. Um, I, I want us to, if you're not familiar with those things, I just invite you to pull up the news somewhere and catch up. On, on what's going on. I believe uh, for some people, uh, we can process these things differently, but in these uh, areas in Beirut and in Paris, uh, struggling with uh, terrorist attacks, killing truly hundreds of people, uh, injuring probably closer to the thousands, uh, if all truth be known. There are, there are a lot of ways that we can process things like this. One is we can dread the fact that it's probably coming here. We can vote politically in a way to try to defend our borders. We can look at why those things would happen maybe in those places. Uh, we might understand it for Lebanon, but not for France. But I can tell you this. As someone who has a fair amount of experience with Lebanon, if you ever went there, you would meet some of the kindest, great, most gracious people you've ever met uh, that are so hospitable and so caring and so pleasant uh, that you would look with disbelief on this week in their life. What I'd rather us do as we process those things, first is I would like us to absorb that, take it in. Those things are really happening. And instead of us being afraid or looking for who's at fault, for us to understand some things about our world, and that is uh, we live in, a, in an evil world. We live in a place where darkness has a voice. Um, so the question is, what do we bring to the table of darkness? Do we bring our own brand of darkness? Do we just want to hate people who do that? Do we want to look for ways uh, that governments can eliminate or kill those people who do those things? Often the church is seen as not very potent, very relevant in these times and these conditions, except for maybe helping with money, uh, and we have some ways that people can participate like that. But the church has a much greater role than that because the church carries the solution of life. Amen. And it has the ingredient that can overpower darkness. And so if you have the potential and the power to pray for someone sitting next to you, then you have the potential and the power to lift up a country far away. And I really detest the term, although sometimes I use it, well, we just have to pray, or all we can do is pray. Making prayer sound like it's kind of just waving the flag, or, you know, it's, it's, a, um, it's just comfort talk. Prayer is not comfort talk. Prayer is world-changing talk. Prayer is upending darkness talk. Prayer is very different than soft-spoken uh, cliches and platitudes 
that might make someone feel better. So when you, in your identity, engage a God who has the power and is willing to use that power, we go to work. And so you need to remember in every conflict, think about it this way. Wherever there are villains, there are victims. And then when you do that, I want you to start praying for the villain first. Always start with the villain. Because they need Jesus. They need love. They need light. And pretty soon you're going to realize that it's really not villains and victims. It's people. Different belief systems, different ways of processing, different solutions to world problems, but they are people who need light. So, Father, today as a congregation, we lift up these societies, these people groups, those who carry guns and weapons and suicide belts to kill and to make a statement, doing what they think is right. And those who have suffered and died under the weight of that darkness. So we say, come, Lord. Come in your power. Come in your redemption. And heal and redeem those things that forever broken and lost without you. Come in your light, Father. Come in your light. As we sang in the songs today, in your mercy, Lord. In your glory, come. Pour it out. Amen. Today we're continuing on in our series on the authority of the Scripture uh, in today's world. To quickly cover a few pieces from last week, I had a few questions. <clears throat> but we started off with kind of an understanding that when we're talking about the authority of the word and we realize what God has done with that word, that in the Old Testament, the word continued to come, the words of God, and he used those words to enact events and power and take action in the Old Testament. And it was the spirit of God under the revelation in the word of God that would come. And then he continued to talk about a time when the word would become resident in the world, and it would, it would be the game changer of the universe. And then Jesus steps on the scene, and in John chapter 1, starting at verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, there it is, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and he was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It's describing Jesus coming into the world. The Word has come in person. The Word is now resident. And today what we're going to see is the understanding of Scripture of the Word and its authority don't really separate. 
And we began that last week. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 24, verse 35, he says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Demonstrating the power and the reality of the authority of his words. It comes in power, and it will not return empty. It will not return empty. It will not come back, those words, without its fruit. And then we look briefly. I had some questions on this. I thought I would hit it one more time. Just looking at the word in ancient text, um, getting a bit of an understanding of why we would consider the word of God to be worthy of staking our life on it. Really, why would we do that? And so there are uh, other works here that we have, uh, some of those you may be familiar with, and some of them you might even be able to pronounce. But the bottom line is, uh, many of these are considered sacred writings. And this is how many of these writings, how many copies over time we have of these writings. And ironically, the one with the fewest amount of errors is the New Testament. And what makes that far more difficult is when you look at the fact that there are a lot of copies to evaluate. And as we looked at last week, these copies are over thousands of years, so they're able to test who has changed what over time. And so we're able to see that over time, man has not changed the Word of God and that God protected it, a miraculous thing. He protected it. So what we have very much reflects what we've had. It is the Word of God. I did make a mistake last week. I said there were 66 books in the Old Testament. That is not a true statement. I'm really shocked no one caught me on that. But there are 66 books in the Bible, and I misquoted that. The New Testament authors quoted 61 of those 66 books, and what they're doing when they quote it, they were quoting it as the word of God. They were validating it as God's word. And then Jesus quotes numerous times, over 36 times from the Old Testament. And last week we looked at what are the odds that one individual would fulfill eight of the 250 plus prophecies in the Old Testament. That one individual could fulfill being the Messiah. And then according to Professor Peter Stoder in 1957, uh, in this article or this, this uh, document was written, um, the odds of that are 1,700 to the 245th power. Um, and I think the number, the zeros are correct this time. So that are the odds. And if you went with all of the prophecies on Jesus, it would be astronomical. I want to say that because I think we often look at the Word of God subjectively. We often look at it as quotes, guidelines, pros, maybe things I can't quite understand. I can't quite make this fit with this. So I kind of marginalize both of them. When it speaks into my life in some way, I look at it as a good idea, a good thing. 
something that I should do and process. It's a way I should live. It's a good way to live. It's the best self-help book in the world. But the truth is, it's not any of those things. It is the Word of God, according to Jesus, and it has the power to be true. And what I want us to see is, if God can hit those odds, he will make the Word come true. It makes the Bible worthy of your trust. In our, in our society today, our culture, our politics, our way of living is really challenging three pieces in the Christian faith. And it's really not just the Christian faith. It's most, most ideas of faith are under, under fire. The first thing is the big picture challenge. You see, when the scripture, it really doesn't say for the church to defend the Bible. My job is not to defend the Bible. I have really no obligation to defend the Bible. If you don't like the Bible, that's okay with me. I mean, that, that has to be okay with me. If the world believes it's not true, it was written by some guys that were doing heroin or, you know, they had the pipe going, you can believe what you choose to believe. I don't have to defend the Bible. It's not, it's not what God has called me to do. In fact, I don't have to defend God. It's not for me to defend God. He hasn't asked me to defend him. He hasn't said, Bill, can you please defend me? Wouldn't that be odd? Really? You're in trouble, God, if you need me to defend you. You did not pick a very worthy subject to defend you. God says, I can, I can take care of myself. I can do just fine. What he do, does want you to do and me is to defend the gospel. He wants you to hold up the gospel. What he's saying is, I want you to stand as a strong voice for my love and my redemption and my forgiveness and my mercy and my grace to anyone out there. And if along the way they kill you, that's okay. I can make that right. But what I want is for you to stand as a light of my love, my grace, my mercy, my kindness, my forgiveness, my invitation to relationship. I want you to keep that up where the world can see it. It's not about you defending right and wrong. It's about you representing the relationship and the potential of that to every person, no matter who they are. The storyline of the scripture is that gospel message. It's that message. And it's the message that scripture said, nothing's going to stop that message. And we're a part of that. The truth as a compass an absolute foundation for your character, your behavior, your values. All of those things are being deconstructed in our culture. 
truth we would like to think of is your truth and my truth. It becomes relevant. That's what creates so many of the issues, is we have a relevant truth. If I don't think the way you do in some societies, then I should kill you. That's my truth. We have truth where we don't accept certain people, or we see certain people as sinful and unworthy, and we don't want to accept them. That's a truth. It's saying anything that you call absolute truth, anything that you're saying is worthy of living my life by, that is under fire in our, in our culture. And that means it's under fire in you and I. It is. Truth is being challenged. It's being challenged. And it becomes relative. I think the church is full of a truth that's relative. And finally, your storyline, the purpose and plan for your life in Jesus is being challenged in this culture. You're green-lighted to live your life for you, to do what you're passionate about, to do what you want to do, to go where you want to go, to be the person you want to be, to seek out your own identity. And we're encouraged to do that without God. But the Bible would say, the Scripture would say, that the one who created you knows you, knows how you tick, and he designed and created your life. He knows every day that's assigned to you. He knows every hair of your head. He is intimately involved. And to think that we navigate the world without him, we navigate our own purpose and our own identity without him, cuts us off from the very life that we were created in. Jesus operated in an authority. Matthew 7, 28 through 30. When Jesus had finished speaking, his teaching, saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. There was something about Jesus. There was something about the word of God and about what he did with it, what it that it had action. It had power. It, it produced, even as he spoke, the word was alive. And it was capable. And Jesus, and people could see it. All kinds of people could see it. So he operated in authority. Jesus gave that authority away. Matthew 10, 1, when he called the 12 disciples to himself, and he gave them authority to drive out impure spirits, to heal every disease and sickness, they were going to preach the kingdom of God. So they were really empowered with the authority to go do the very things that he was doing. And it worked. So this authority is real, and it's rooted in the truth. 
Jesus was operating in his identity as it was described by God. That's who he was. He embraced it. He went with it. And God in him walked out his life. And you can say a lot of things about Jesus, but most people would not think that he didn't really do all that great a job at his life. Most people think he really got a lot out of 33 years. Most people would say, yeah, I believe he lived his passion. I believe his passion was crafted by God himself. Jesus' authority was challenged. Matthew 21, starting in verse 23, when Jesus returned to the temple and began teaching, the leading priests and the elders came up to him. They demanded, why, what authority are you doing all these things? Who gave you the right? Who, who told you that you could do these things? It was the word of God. It was the word of truth that empowered Jesus to do the things of God that was upsetting the world. And when I say upsetting it, turning it upside down. So the big picture is being challenged. The picture of the gospel doesn't have to be Jesus. Certainly there are other ways to get to heaven. Certainly there are other ways to know God. So the question is, where have you placed the authority in your life? Where do you put it? By that I'm saying, what set of beliefs have power and influence in your life. Because whatever those are for you, they're going to mold your character. They're going to nurture your identity or destroy it. They're going to establish values that you honor with your life, meaning you live out with your life. And it's going to establish what is important to you. What has that kind of power in your life? And I want you to know, all of us are operating under an authority. It could be you're operating under your authority. It could be that you kind of decide what's right and wrong. It could be that you can say, uh, yes, I'm going to forgive this person because they did something wrong to me, and no, I'm not going to forgive that person even though they did something wrong to me. Perhaps it's you that is the authority in that. But I want you to understand, as you live out your life, if that is a moving authority, if it is moving, if your truth is over here today and over here tomorrow, if your truth moves around and your authority is moving however it is comfortable, when somebody really makes me angry, they've done the unthinkable, I'm not going to forgive them. I don't have to, and it's true. I don't. So let's see what that's done with me. How is that affecting my character? How is that affecting my identity? What about my values? How is it affecting those things? Because it is. When I decide there are people groups I don't like, 
when I judge people, maybe in a homosexual lifestyle, when I start doing these things, they are all affecting me. I am operating under a truth. Whether I got it from you, I got it from someone else, I created it myself, or I got it from God. Many of us have very little truth that we're depending on. Many of us are operating just right out of the hip pocket. Today, I'm feeling generous. Today, I got a raise. Today, my car passed inspection. Today, this happened. Today, this happened. And because of that, I'm generous. I'm honorable. When they made a mistake on the check, I corrected it and paid more money. I gave a big tip. And the day I get fired, unjustly, the day my car breaks down on the same day, the day my friend calls me and, and rips me off for something. And when they make a mistake on the check, I think, great, at least something went my way today. You hear the difference? You see, what truth am I operating on in that scenario? It's my feelings, my emotions. It's why people have so big a struggle with character. It's why they struggle in marriage and in relationships. It's why they struggle in things. Their truth is all over the place because there's nothing solid. They say, this is what will be my compass? Jesus saw them as one. Truth and authority. Jesus never separated truth from authority. He saw them as inseparable, and truth held authority, and authority held truth. They held one another. Truth gave him the authority to be who he was, and who he was expressed and made the truth a reality. So he didn't lie, because that would violate truth. And that robs authority because you remove the power of what the truth is capable of. Every time we deny the truth. So see, when we marginalize God, when we marginalize Jesus, we marginalize truth in our own life. And we marginalize what we have to give another person. It's always a challenge when I'm talking to people who are invested heavily in, let's say, the Middle East and those places, because it's so easy to take a side. You know, in the Republicans and the Democrats, it's so easy to take a side. It's so easy. And, you know, society and our culture is designed to make you do that. Everybody has become absolutely amazing with 140 characters. We live our life in a series of sound bites. It'll be this little uh, line that's really catchy that's about Donald Trump's hair. And that's how we see Donald Trump now. And we're able to quote that little line. 
And there's something else about Hillary. And, and I think the world is just insatiable in its desire to make up mocking comments about everybody. And you know, we love to laugh at everybody. We love to laugh at Obama. We love to laugh at Donald Trump. We love to laugh at people at their expense. We love to see these little quips, and the world is full of them. But in the absence of other things, do you know what those quips become? They become your truth. And so you hear things like the guy on the radio I heard yesterday morning. This is such a bad field of, of people um, who, are, who are lined up to, to uh, be a president of the United States. I think I should get in and try. How many times have you heard that? It's like old. I, I've even said it. I'll probably say it again. He said the only way, actually, he said it nicely. The only way we could make this worse is if I ran. So that was a nice little spin. We're quick to take sides. In the scripture, you don't see God do that. When they bring him the woman caught in adultery. The law says to stone her, what do you say? I say, let the one of you without sin throw the first rock. That's just not an answer they were ready for. They just didn't see that one coming, did they? He just was not quick to take a side there, was he? You don't need to take a side. What you do is you listen to what Jesus has, and you go with it. Doesn't mean people aren't wrong. It doesn't mean that you can't be against things that are wrong. It means that issues in the world are complicated. What truth has the authority in your life? Your experiences will shape your values. It'll shape your heart. It'll make your heart hard if you allow it. Your experiences will become your truth. Your weaknesses and your strengths will dominate your direction and activities. You will lean into your strengths. You will, you will shield yourself from your weaknesses, and that will become your truth. You will give authority to your experiences. So if you have a bad experience with the church, churches are bad. That becomes our truth. Everybody whose pants is low is a gangbanger and is going to steal your car. That becomes your truth. Your relationships will benefit, nurture, challenge this authority and truth in your life. So you see, when I look at the relationships in my life, 
Are they reinforcing the truth God is giving me, or do they challenge that truth? I see those in relationships all the time. I see relationships where the truth in one is being challenged by the truth of another. And they say, Bill, you know, I've got these problems in my relationship, and these problems, these problems. And I ask that question, do you really want an answer from me? Or are you just venting? If you're venting, I'm here at least for a little while. I'm not going to be here long. If you just want to bleed, I'll give you a few minutes. But if you want me to comment, I think you need to dump the guy. But he's a good guy. I, I wouldn't know that or not. I'm not saying he's a bad guy or a good guy. I'm saying he is a guy that challenges your truth. So you have to decide. Are you lonely? Are you needy? Are you wounded? Are you hurting? Do you need someone to make you whole and complete? Are you willing to trade your truth for that person? That's what the cost is. That's what the cost is. And then when you get to a certain place where you no longer can work with that cost, then you have to figure a way out of this. And some people never do. And some people get out and then they get into another one. And then they get out and they get into another one. And they get out and get into another one. You know who you are. Your truth is a critical part of your life. Where is the authority? What determines right and wrong? What determines who you are? In Isaiah 55, 11, That's not the right verse, but it's a great verse, and it is part of this sermon, but it's, it's mislabeled here. So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I desire and achieve, the purpose for which I sent it. That's God talking about his word. Does that sound like prose? Does that sound like he sent a good idea? Or did he say this word, with or without you, will accomplish my intentions? In John 17, Jesus is praying to God. He makes a, an interesting comment here in his prayer. Uh, 17, verse 15, I'm not asking you, talking to God, that you take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one in the world. They do not belong in this world any more than I do. Make them holy by your truth. Make them holy by your truth, Father. Just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world, and I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them so they can be made holy by your truth. 
That's the power and the authority that Jesus is talking about that can make somebody like me holy. Righteous, holy, sinless. That's the power of God's truth. Romans 4.20. Abraham never wavered in, in believing God's promise. In fact, he grew, his faith grew stronger, and in this he brought glory to God. He was fully convinced that, the God, that God is able to do whatever he promises. And because of Abraham's faith, God counted it to him as righteousness. He believed God's word. He believed God could make good on the big impossible deal. And he held on to it through thick and thin, through years, through everything else. He held on to that truth. You see, and we, we talk about faith. You know, we go a week and God hadn't answered and we're ready to move on to something else, you know, break out the cards or something. But the truth is God's word will come through. We just often don't give it very much authority. In Romans, no, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. This is Paul speaking. And I am convinced that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or below the earth, indeed nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Paul says, I am convinced. Now, see, he's unpacking how he sees this power. Nothing is going to stop what God is doing in me. Nothing above the earth, in the heavens, nothing below the earth, as we would call hell, nothing on the earth, nothing created, nothing out there, nothing in there, before me, after me. There is nothing that can upset the truth. And I'm giving that truth authority. You see, we separate them. Jesus did not. Paul didn't put them together. I am giving God's truth authority. I am declaring it so in my life. We see over and over again in the Scripture People who took their stand, giving truth authority. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the Old Testament, they were said, either worship this idol that we put out here or we're going to throw you in the fire. They said, no, we're not going to worship the rock. It's not our God. We're not going to worship him. And our God is able to deliver us. He will deliver us. But then they quickly come back and say, but even if he doesn't, that rock is still not our God. 
See, it's about the truth. It's not about, will God rescue me from the fire? It's about that rock is not God. And no threat, nothing you attach to that will make that change. You see, that truth had authority. Do you see that? It had the power to stand in the face of threat. They said, here's the way it is. They gave the truth of God the authority in their life. Well, you know, man can do the same thing. And so what did the king do? He threw him in the fire. That's his authority, isn't it? His authority is two can play that. You're staying with your truth. I'm staying with mine. Make the fire seven times hotter than throw them in. And they did. And then he could see them standing in the fire, not being burned up. And he could see as he threw three in there, there was a fourth one in there. Someone met them in the fire. Jesus met them in the fire. And it just burned the ropes off that were holding their arms. And then the king says, hey, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out here. Here he's still ordering them around like he has authority. Now, see, I'm sinful. I would have said, dude, why don't you come in here? Come on in. Feels great. But they were nicer than me, and they were more godly than me, and they operated in authority and truth better than I do. And so they walked out, and he says, there's no God like your God. No God can do what your God can do. That's what God wanted all along. What God wants people to do is realize that he trumps all those things that we conjure up as power. Now, the, one of the easiest ways for people to really get that is for you to be thrown in the fire. That's all it takes. When you get thrown in the fire and you're standing there talking to Jesus, it will change the conversation. But we do everything in our power to not be in the fire. And then when somebody gets thrown into the fire, we wonder, where was God? And anytime we're thrown into the fire, God would say, I'm always in the fire. Never does someone go in the fire. I'm not there. You see, so often in troubled times, people surrender their truth. They feel like the truth isn't working. Abraham waited Years and years for a son. But that truth was real. For people in other parts of the world who are reeling today and and will be. Some of them are, their truth is being challenged. See, that's where circumstances can challenge your truth. 
but truth is more powerful than circumstances. But often, we pull back the authority when it gets hard. Second Timothy verse one, chapter one, rather, verse 12. That is why I'm suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame because I know whom I have believed in. And I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him against that day. Through all these, you're seeing people declaring this truth has full authority in my life. I give it full authority. Through every circumstance, through every trial, through every struggle, through every defeat, through every victory, it stands as the moral compass of my life. So when we look at current events, what does God say? Does God have a view on immigration? If, if God is some kind of an authority in your life, doesn't it make sense that we would wonder what his view of immigration is, what his view of same-sex marriage is. And, and when you hear that, and if you think that's just a cloaked way for me to describe those things, you might want to think again. You don't, I'm saying it's worthy of getting with God and giving him a voice in the current events that you navigate often on your own. Because God's truth is not about deciding these guys are right, these guys are wrong. The truth is about what you're following. I can't use my truth to judge you. And I won't. I'm also very careful about using God's truth to judge you. That's God's work, not mine. I defend the gospel. <clears throat> if we could stand. <clears throat>